Okay. Um, welcome back, everyone. Um, and it gives me enormous pleasure, uh, firstly, to be here in um, a space where we held English Parliament during the Civil War. Um, that gives me an opportunity to say, hail the king, who in this instance is Margrethe de Grazia. <laughs> um, I'm very, very delighted and honoured to be introducing Margrethe. Her book, Shakespeare Verbatim, her first book, um, really shaped quite a lot of the Malone studies that we've been talking about today. And in particular, she created um, the good and the bad Malone, or reflected them. And I think we've been jostling with those two Malones um, uh, throughout today. Um, her second book, Hamlet Without Hamlet, uh, won many awards. Um, and not only has she also edited a number of important collections, but she's also in the middle at present of two book projects. One is five Shakespearean period pieces, and one is Shakespeare Without a Life. So she's being highly, highly uh, productive in all sorts of different areas, which has typified um, her, her work. So um, I'm very, very delighted to introduce her, and I'm fascinated to hear uh, what line she will now take on this complicated character. So, um, Margrethe. Well, many thanks. Um, first to David Castan, a great regret to us all that he's not here. It was so brilliant uh, to collaborate with Catherine and Alexandra on this particular topic. Uh, he was at the heart of it from the beginning. David is also someone who has sent good things my way and the way of many, many, many others over his career. Um, and in this instance... I wasn't so sure, I was so happy with the invitation because the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to go back where my career began with Malone. <laughs> but the marginal aspect of it intrigued me um, since I never worked with Malone's manuscripts before. Uh, I was in, my book was entirely based on the printed textual um, situation. Uh, so this has been a wonderful opportunity for me. I also have to give a special acknowledgement to um, the editor of the new John Aubrey Brief Lives, and that is Kate Bennett. And I am so admiring of this book that I actually lugged it here uh, so that you could see it, but this is a phenomenal edition. Um, I'm in awe of it. I'm in awe of the sheer genius of it, but also uh, the extraordinary labor that went into it. Um, and it's not only that, I was very lucky, this came out in March, toward the end of March. I knew more or less what I wanted to work on, but what I ended up doing would have been not only impossible, but unthinkable without this extraordinary resource. Kate Bennett is here, but I want her to know I would have said that even if she hadn't been. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> This is a sampling of the ciphers Malone used when preparing an edition of John Aubrey's manuscripts of Brief Lives. <clears throat> and this was just after the publication of his 1790 edition of Shakespeare. On the recto page, he described Aubrey's text. On the verso, he annotated it. The edition was never printed, but if it had been, those ciphers, these ciphers, would undoubtedly have been converted to conventional superscript numbers, or perhaps letters, ordered sequentially. Why such a scramble of irregular and unsystematic ciphers in preparation for print? Especially in the hand of Malone, the editor largely acclaimed for his rationalization of the Shakespearean text. When sitting down to the perusal of any work, either ancient or modern, Malone's attention was drawn to its chronology. There are overlaps of my paper with Tiffany's. One of the things that I'm going to have a hard time resisting in going through this paper is making links with papers that have already uh, been given. It's inevitable. It's been so interesting to hear the papers before me. So that's comment that I just read, sitting down to the perusal of any work, 
<coughs> Malone's attention was drawn to its chronology. That's James Boswell's junior observation in his biographical memoir of the late Edmund Malone. As the younger friend and collaborator who completed the 1821 edition Malone worked on until his death, Boswell knew Malone's working habits well. And it is the primacy Malone accords to chronology that is the focus of my lecture, the necessity to found his biographical and editorial work on a dating, a dated sequencing. But I will end as I began by raising the question of why an editor committed to chronology to the numerical ordering of events in time should be using glyphs that have no sequential relation whatsoever. And clearly, I've called these from his manuscript. Um, they're scattered over a number of pages. But they're ubiquitous. They're the only kind he uses. In the first part, uh, he has no letters, no numbers whatsoever. Malone's attention to chronology first surfaced when assisting the other Boswell, James Boswell Sr., in writing the great groundbreaking work, Life of Johnson. According to Peter Martin, Malone was the midwife to that biography, and Boswell describes how he read the manuscript to Malone and benefited from his remarks. He corrected half the proof sheets, and he annotated later editions. But... Malone's important contribution, most important contribution, might have been before Boswell put pen to paper. <clears throat> Uncertain how to unorganize the vast quantity of materials he amassed, Boswell turned to Malone for advice. And this was Malone's advice. Make a skeleton with references to the materials in the order of time. And so he did. Boswell had the distinct advantage of having Johnson's diary for the tw final 20 years of his life, but even that was not enough, said Boswell. I have sometimes been obliged to run half over London in order to fix a date correctly. The resultant biography was one that conformed to the chronological series of Johnson's life, which I, said Boswell, traced as distinctly as I could year by year. Johnson's works, as well as the events of his life, were put in the same order, and also with Malone's assistants, who extracted dates of first publications from notices and periodicals, and then listed them in that chronological skeleton. Malone put his own chronological principle into practice when preparing editions of the life and writings of both Pope and Dryden. Um, here, in this library, um, is a folded sheet chronological order of Pope's works, and you open it, um, and you see, oh, I don't know, I'm sorry about that lighting, Alexander Pope, born at London, uh, May 21st, um, 1680, and then the chronological list that is continued on the next pages. So you see him preparing for his edition uh, that he never got very far with, but he did begin with the chronology, and I think this must have preceded it, uh, this must be the bad copy uh, because he's reordering with numbers uh, some of the uh, dating on the sheet. <clears throat> so uh, Malone's aim was to replace William Burton's 1751 edition, um, an edition that scrupulously followed Malone's specifications in his will, none of which concerned the chronological ordering of his works. Malone does, however, complete and publish his edition of the life and writings of Dryden, where, in the preface, he explains that he has deviated from chronological order only when strictly necessary, extending and tabulating the chronology of plays furnished by Dryden himself, and then taking the next step, and I think this was before Shakespeare's life received periods, but Malone's, Malone gives four periods to Dryden's life as well as working out the chronology. As very often, almost always, Malone takes inspiration from the errors of his predecessors. Johnson, in his Life of Dryden, in his Lives of Eminent Poets, had loosely ordered his lives from the time of poets' deaths rather than births, and preferred to give the latest date of a given work rather than the earliest. In addition, unlike Malone himself, Johnson was 
says Malone, generally careless of dates because disinclined to examine ancient registers, offices of record, and those sepulchres of literature, public repositories of manuscripts. And therefore, uh, says Malone of Johnson, he was under the necessity of trusting much to his own retentive but still fallible memory. Malone also writes a biography of Joshua Reynolds, his close friend and the painter of the uh, fine portrait that Ivan had uh, mischievously placed uh, at the heading of his lecture. Um, With all of Reynolds' papers in his possession, and he was a great friend, he was able to track not only the progress of his life, but also his steadily rising reputation as reflected in the increasing prices commanded by his paintings, from 12 guineas a portrait or a head in 1755 to 20 in 1760 to 25 in 1770 to a hefty 50 at his retirement in 1781. Of course, Malone is celebrated, among us anyway, less for his attention to the life and writings of Johnson, Pope, Dryden, and Reynolds than to Shakespeare. Um, And some of this, uh, again, emphasizes his interest in chronology, as Tiffany did. I also want to emphasize how novel uh, that particular (laughs) aspect of his apparatus is. His first scholarly contribution to Shakespeare studies was an attempt to ascertain the order in which the plays attributed to Shakespeare were written, uh, and he revised it up until his death in 1812 and left Boswell's the instruction to print the plays in that order. So it wasn't only that he organized them in that order, he also wanted them reproduced and encountered in that order. And Boswell does so, but interestingly enough, he won't do it for the history plays because it means putting the kings in the wrong regnal order. So it's this wonderful conflict. What's more important, authorial composition or the kings of England? Boswell thought the latter. All right, so, um, so his, in, in the same way uh, that he focuses on chronology and the, um, uh, of, the, of the plays, uh, he also uh, began um, and worked on uh, until his death uh, his life of William Shakespeare, proposed in 1790 and unfinished at his death. Malone introduced both projects as novelties. The chronology was a new and curious inquiry, and the biography an entirely new life of Shakespeare. Pre-Malonean biographical notices of Shakespeare have no dates at all. All the familiar anecdotes, deer-stealing, stop-offs at Davenant's Tattern, retirement to Stratford, etc., have no dates, as Malone was quick to complain. Nothing is more wanting in the traditionary tales than dates." Uh, Fuller and, and Winstanley, uh, uh, who the latter worked so closely in correspondence with the former, uh, they begin to give, all they can do in, by way of giving uh, the date of Shakespeare's death uh, is 1 6, and they leave the last two digits um, open. Um, and in the early listings of the canon, uh, so it's not only that the anecdotes um, are not dated or the bi- biographies are not chronological, uh, but also the earliest listings of the canon. Uh, so Langbane and Gildon uh, give his plays but arrange them alphabetically. Tom- Thomas Wharton's History of English Poetry that wasn't completed until 1781 claims to be the first written in a chronological series so that he can illustrate the gradual development or progress of our national poetry from 11th century barbarism to 18th century civility. But that's what I'm stressing, the novelty of using chronology for literary history, not just for Malone, but in general. Now, at last, Aubrey's Brief Lives. Chronologically minded about his own activities, Malone records the date, 10 July 1792, when he resolved to transcribe and publish Aubrey at some future time. And he also inscribed the date when he, in fact, began to do so. I began on this day to transcribe the manuscript of Lives of Celebrated Men written by John Aubrey, September 16, 1792. We don't know when, if ever, Malone gave up on the edition, 
though he seems to have held on to the manuscript quite literally until at least 1797 when a pamphlet was published complaining, and this is an echo of papers heard earlier, complaining that the keeper of the Ashmolean had granted him the almost unknown indulgence of having the manuscript removed to his house from the museum for his greater convenience in copying and transcribing, reserving it for his exclusive use it was claimed, until he finished his own edition. This would have been quite a long spell, especially, as was claimed, um, if he intended to put Aubrey's life's force to the world on the same scale as his last edition of Shakespeare. That's the 1790 edition of Shakespeare. On the one hand, Aubrey's manuscripts were a Shakespeare editor's dream, a manuscript or manuscripts uncontaminated by printers and editors, But it was also an editor's nightmare. They consisted, the manuscripts, of three separate bundles of pages in disparate sizes, from folio to little slips and scraps, both stitched together and interleafed, uh, mainly written, often scribbled, but also sketched. There are drawings of armorial crests, horoscopes, tombs, gardens, some coloreds. Um, Mainly they are not. Uh, They seem to be colored by Aubrey. Um, but there's a, much of what the manuscripts contain are from other authors, especially correspondence, collections of letters, of autographs, um, epitaphs, and so on. Marginal scribbling encroaches, going every which way on the text proper on most pages. Uh, sometimes the marginal notes are intended for incorporation into the text, sometimes cross-referencing other works. Uh, You also have a great deal of interlinear writing, deleted lines, blank spaces intended to be filled in the future by a future reader, by Aubrey himself, we don't know, um, and notes to also seek out another source, another informant in his project. The heterogeneity of the whole seems to design to resist reproduction in uniform print. Kate Bennett suggests that the manuscripts might better be classified not as book, but as paper museum. Before Malone, nine of the lives appeared in a lavishly printed volume called The Oxford Cabinet, which seems like a a nice reflection of uh, what's contained in the manuscripts. And in fact, the manuscript was housed in a cabinet um, in the Ashmolean before Malone took it home with him. Aubrey maintained that the fact he had not made a fair copy of the lives meant that the manuscripts survived in puris naturabilis, in their true colors, he translates, which he said pleases an an antiquary. Safekeeping is important to him rather than circulation. Authored by many, put to paper over a protracted period of time, about 40 years, generically miscellaneous and never finished, it posed a daunting editorial challenge how to marshal so much disparate and undigested stuff into a printed book. And hats off to Malone for attempting it. Uh, it's a, an extraordinary uh, dare to, the editor- to editorial imagination and skills. <clears throat> Though he never publishes his edition, Malone does transcribe a total of 130 lives in his mainly steadily uniform script, and he annotates them on the opposite page, keying his notes with the ciphers with which I began. He titles the edition An Apparatus for the Lives of the Most Eminent English Poets and Other Celebrated Persons. So poets primarily, but other celebrated persons get cast into the second volume. That's his ordering and not Aubrey's. The first part contains the lives of the poets and the second, the lives of prose writers and other celebrated persons. He began, as we would expect, with a chronological lineup for each part of Aubrey's manuscript. And his transcript um, of Aubrey is in chronological order. And one thing you can say for sure about that manuscript is that it is in nothing remotely resembling chronological order. He introduces a table of contents for each of the two sections, listing the lives in chronological order, uh, and it is that order in which he transcribed them in his notebooks. So a rational through line runs through each of the two parts, The poets, here's the first one, uh, the first table of contents, and you can see that the poets range from Chaucer, well, you'll have to take my word for it, I'm sorry we're not in the other room, from Chaucer and Gower 
um, uh, to Milton and Waller, uh, and all of the others are, are properly ordered in time. And then we have the second part um, of his transcription, um, and these are uh, all of the other celebrated persons who were not poets, um, and these range from Roger Bacon and Erasmus to John Wilkins and Isaac Barrow, who were contemporaries of Aubrey's and members of the Royal Society. Uh, there is a bit of an anomaly, which I do not understand, uh, but I will uh, admit to. Uh, this continues the table of contents, as you can see by the page numbers, but these are all 16th century figures, and I don't know if he intended to put them in um, and didn't, uh, but in any case, they're isolated for, from the otherwise perfect chronological tables. You also see his tally there. Um, so he's done um, 68 poets, 62 others, and then that 44, for a grand total of 74, refers to another volume of Aubrey that Malone worked on but did not transcribe. And this was a volume, this is another one of these antagonisms among uh, textualists between um, Aubrey and Anthony Wood, uh, but they collaborated very, very thickly for many years, had a great falling out toward the end. Uh, at its basis uh, is that... Aubrey lent Wood, or gave him, I mean, they were exchanging materials all the time, um, his volumes, and there was one that he didn't return, and when he finally returned, uh, 44 pages were missing, and I think Malone is assuming that there are 45, 44 lives there. Um, in any case, uh, that's a long explanation, but it refers to matter later, so not irrelevant. <clears throat> We do not know much about the order in which Aubrey had deposited the manuscript in, Ash, in the Ashmolean in 1693, a century before Malone. The manuscript was in three parts. All three, it seems, were once stitched up, though also interleaved with loose sheets. Aubrey, however, explains that one part had been unstitched before being deposited in the Ashmolean by his sometime fellow antiquarian and collaborator, Anthony Wood. It was stitched up when I sent it to him. Wood had removed 44 pages, as Aubrey charged and Malone repeated at least three times in the course of his transcript. Um, and this is a quality of Malone's, that he is redressing wrong, he is correcting error. It's a great stimulant to him uh, and uh, a great generator of additional information, but it so often is uh, announced in the form of making right, correcting, uh, and he seems to uh, excel at that. Um, he also would remove the index for this second volume, though its survival would not have helped much either about the contents of the volume or the order of the contents. At least if Aubrey's remaining indices are any indication, not all lives in the manuscript are in the indices, and many that are in the indices are not in the manuscript. Either uh, they were written elsewhere or they're yet to be written either by Aubrey or by somebody else. Presently, in the, they, they're presently in the order in which they were bound and paginated by the Bodleian um, around 1860. This is not to say, though, that Aubrey does, though Aubrey does say this, that his lives have been put in writing tumultuarily as they occurred to my thoughts or as occasionally I had information of them. There are hints of some organizational principle or principles, I should say, in the making. There is a cluster of poets uh, that is more or less regular, although they're also outliers, and most of them are noted with laurel wreaths in the margin. Um, and they're never in chronological order, so the most famous run is Dryden, Shakespeare, Johnson. Uh, there are also a few genealogical clusters um, and some ordering principle, um, and this is just a sheer guess on my part, armorial crests are given for most of the subjects of brief lives, uh, but only some of them are colored um, in the manuscript. The others are just left sketches, uh, but some Aubrey colors in. And of the ten, uh, at least the ten that I counted, um, that are colored, eight of them are mathematicians. Uh, and one of the th many things that Kate Bennett's um, edition does is stress 
um, Aubrey's interest in um, and mathematicians and in mathematics more generally, um, and mathematics being that discipline that reaches out into so many areas uh, in this period of, of the, the middle of the 17th century and the Royal Society. All right. Um, Malone, though, has no interest in seeking out such groupings or proto-groupings. Indeed, he overrides Aubrey's most explicit instruction for the ordering of the lives, noting in the margin of his life of the mathematician John Pell, and this is an instance of Malone, I guess it was, uh, it, w- it was you who said something about how Malone always signals any kind of a, um, any kind of a, a modification that he's making in the text, and he does do that here. He says um, that John Pell, the mathematician, had written, excuse me, that in the life of John Pell, Aubrey had written, I would have the lives of John Dee, Sir Henry Billingsley, the two Diggs, father and son, um, Mr. Briggs and Dr. Pell be put together. But Malone sticks fast to what for him is a higher rule, uh, writing, this division I could not comply with, as it would have interfered with the chronological arrangement I have endeavored to preserve. And I think that word preserve is rather interesting. Um, because I think he meant observe instead of preserve. There's no chronological order in the brief lives to preserve. Impose, in this instance, would have been more accurate. Before that order could be imposed, Malone had to have established the termini of the lives. Many of Malone's annotations supply or correct Aubrey's dates, particularly birth dates and death dates. He supplies dates, Malone does, for Francis Beaumont. These are dates missing in Aubrey and his accounts. Mary Countess of Pembroke, Sir Thomas Overbury, John Sackville, Catherine Phillips, and numerous others. In a few cases, when Aubrey had left a blank or dotted line, Malone inserts the date into the text proper. In John Suckling's entry, Aubrey writes, he was born, dot, dot, dot. Malone fills it in, first with 1613, then he crosses it out and inserts in the year 1609. This date I have supplied from the register of the parish of Twickenham. Aubrey had calculated that Suckling was 28 when he died. This, however, was a mistake. Aubrey had calculated... um, This, however, was a mistake, and Malone corrects it from the same registry. In the Erasmus entry, Malone lifts the birth date out of his manuscript horoscope. There it is. So he takes it out of the horoscope and puts it into into the page itself. He was born at Rotterdam on October 27, 1467. In William Octred's account, he again corrects Aubrey, who records... Uh, his age at death at 88 years and odd days. This is a mistake of computation, and he does the math and decides that he couldn't have, um, he, he couldn't have been more than 85 complete and consequently into his 86th year. Aubrey leaves blank the final digit of John Cleveland's death day. Um, Malone fills it in and also uh, corrects what Aubrey said was the day of his death. This is a mistake. He didn't die of palsy but of intermittent fever. Malone is particularly proud of having ascertained the previously undiscovered date of Aubrey's own death. Again, a correction since he was supposed to have, uh, divide, he was supposed to have died in 1700. Uh, but Malone determines otherwise. He records, I, on this day, however, found that he was buried in St. Maudlin's church or churchyard on June 7, 1697. He also dates the date of his discovery of that fact, July 18, 1792. Now, this is rather speculative, and I do dare anyone, uh, not dare, invite, really, anyone to disprove what I'm about to say in this next paragraph. We are accustomed to seeing birth dates and death dates after a name, so accustomed that we tend not to appreciate the difficulty of establishing those termini in earlier periods. Only after Thomas Cromwell's Edict of 1538, and I Uh, owe this knowledge to Adam Smythe's wonderful book on autobiography. Only after that were parish registers required to record the dates of baptism and burial and not on durable paper until 1558. Even with access to a registry, a subject may have not died in the same parish in which he was born, or if they had, the two dates would have been separated by many pages. Funeral monuments and epitaphs give only the date of the deceased's death or burial, 
uh, hic, jacet, qui, obit, and so on, uh, or the age or etatis at the time of death. Obviously, I don't even know what it would mean to do the research it would take to establish this, uh, that it's hard to determine date of birth, date of death um, in this early period. I will say that I did look at John Weaver's 1,000 inscriptions, and there were none on them that had the date of birth and the date of death. Um, it's the burial and the death that counts, and the birth date is not there. Even in Malone's time, the biographical abridgment of two endpoints spanned by a dash is something of a novelty. Now, this you won't be able to see very well, but I'll tell you what it is. This is called a chart of biography, and it was published in England and London in 1765. It's a colored etching on two broadsheets um, that are about that size, in fact. Uh, the chart consists of, and you have to take my word for it, although, or the divisor's word for it, it consists of 2,000 lines, one for each eminent person from 12,000 BC to the time of the chart's making in AD 1765. So those little lines, brief lives indeed, um, are of eminent persons in that extraordinary range of time. According to Anthony Grafton, the timelines on this chart are the first to be printed in England. This, I would like to emphasize, is not a technical innovation, nothing new about etching straight lines, but it's a conceptual one. An accompanying pamphlet uh, to this um, chart explains how duration and time can be represented by extension in space. Malone might have seen this chart. He and the chart's divisor, Joseph Priestley, moved in similar intellectual circles that included Johnson, Edward Gibbon, and especially Edmund Burke. But it doesn't matter if he didn't see it. He's clearly thinking along the same lines. The lives um, along the side there are grouped in six different um, categories. Uh, this is the one that is of most interest to us and to uh, Aubrey, artists and poets. I shouldn't say to Aubrey because actually Aubrey would be more interested in the classification of mathematicians and physicians. They're paired together in this chart. Uh, and then there's another one, antiquarians and historians. Uh, there is a, a bit of overlap between the charts eminent persons in 1765 and Aubrey's, and I'll have examples of those uh, momentarily. Now, on this chart, each line is a, little, a literal biograph, right? a, a graphene or drawing of a bios or life, and each biograph requires dated termini to be set. When you see the dots, as you do before, mm, dead center, Inigo Jones, and also Spencer, those dots, if they come before or after the line, indicate that the date is not unknown. Okay, um, so the time and duration of a lifetime can be determined by aligning, and you need some rules for this, by aligning a biograph's two endpoints with the dated gradient uh, that is at the top of the chart. And what you have at the top of the chart are years, decades, and centuries notched in. Uh, so you can tell any given line's um, span of lifetime <clears throat> with just this chart. Each of the 2,000 lifelines runs parallel to the universal one. Personal biography follows the course of world history, advancing chronologically in the same forward direction from left to right, from earliest to latest. And this is the beautiful simplicity uh, and economy of the rectilinear. By the end of the next century, abbreviating a lifetime as a dash between two endpoints becomes absolutely formulaic. In the Monumental Dictionary of National Biography, uh, published uh, 1882 to 1900, every name is followed in the form we're used to seeing it everywhere by inclusive dates within parentheses. For easy reference, it arranges the entries alphabetically as in a dictionary, but as the incipit of each of its 30,000 individual um, life it, at the incipit is the linking of the dates by a dash, which epitomizes the life that is then narrated in the um, entry from cradle to grave in chronological order. 
Also around the turn of the century, Clarendon published the first scholarly edition of Brief Lives with the same biographical formula following in parentheses after each subject. This is the briefest possible representation of a full life, a line between two endpoints. It has been the traditional biographer's task to narrativize the interval, calibrating it with sequential events between birth and death. If you have the chronology of the works as well as the chronology of a life, and those were Malone's twinned imperatives for all of his authors, then the two can be coordinated. What an author did at the same time that he wrote the basis of man and his work's criticism. And of course, the two, the works and the life, can be coordinated with events in history, and that is the basis of all historicism uh, as well. Like Malone and Priestley, Aubrey is a date monger. But for one date in particular, that of a person's nativity uh, or genitor, he had been collecting nativities or genitors since 1679, and he completed a manuscript of them, a collection of genitors well attested that I have so luckily made. Now, he didn't make up uh, these horoscopes. They come from authoritative astrologers, and he often names them. Before falling out with Anthony Wood, he stressed to him their importance. I would have all, that is all the subjects, all the eminent persons, I would have all uh, the eminent persons' nativities religiously set down, if attainable, and also their obits. For the sake and improvement of astrology. As he makes clear in his prefatory letter to the manuscript, his biographical project is impelled by a desire Malone could never, well, could not have shared, the promotion of astrology. For, says Aubrey, it is a science not yet perfect. To be perfect, it must get a suplex, and that's just a mass supply of true genitors. To that end, he explains, I have with much care collected these ensuing genitors, which the astrologers may rely on, for I have set them down from their own mouths. Such a compilation of nativities would be, he says, for the great advancement of astrology. And the uh, advancement of astrology is his phrase, echoing the Baconian ideal by which knowledge advances by the accumulation of data, the more the better, in this instance, by collecting horoscopes when possible and gathering biographical details to determine the degree of planetary influence on individual lives. And one of the things, there was so much discussion earlier today about loss uh, and the antiquarian and editorial uh, impulse um, to save and preserve and transmit. But what's so interesting about Aubrey, who is in so many ways is an exemplary antiquarian, is that there's this great interest Uh, in the future uh, in the form of mathematics and science and inventions, uh, all of this much encouraged by the Royal Society to which he too contributed. Um, So much of his thinking is progressive rather than antiquarian. The Brief Lives manuscript includes about 20 horoscopes with one exception. This is one of the ones he draws but never fills out. This is the one exception that is actually a printed from, taken from um, a printed form um, and filled in. The others are all drawn by um, Aubrey, we think, and uh, with the information of others. Um, he, um, as Kate Bennett um, suggests, uh, he often drew um, the Uh, horoscope onto the folio page itself um, and put it either in the center or flush with one of the margins, and then he wrote. Uh, So the horoscope is physically um, primary and fundamental to the whole project. Now, no trace of them remains in Malone or indeed in subsequent editions until Kate Bennett's edition, who does include them all. 
No, I think it was Tessie who asked the question about omission and is there a principle of omission and isn't that an interesting category? What is, well, I don't want to say purposefully omitted, but it's not omitted by accident either. In any case, none of these horoscopes appear. Malone does, however, take opportunity to ridicule astrology. In his Life of Dee, Aubrey mentions matter-of-factly that Dee showed the eclipse with a dark room and kept many stills going. And Malone regrets that Aubrey should mention the vagaries of Dee's supernatural assertions without reprobation. Right? These are the notes on the side of his um, transcript. Aubrey's description of John Cleveland as a comely, plump man, good curled hair, dark brown, prompts Malone's jibe. Softer, flaccid hair was thought an unfavorable denotation by those idle enough to put any confidence in astrology. So too does Aubrey's description of John Pell's melancholico, sanguine, dark brown hair with an excellent moist curl. Here's, here our author is at his old loons. The, all right, I haven't shown uh, too many of these manuscripts. That's Thomas Hobbes, and there's Dees. And this is an interesting one. This is the only one that Malone does transcribe, and he explains why he made... Well, he doesn't explain that he made an exception. He explains why he included it. Mr. Aubrey, Aubrey has inserted here... Uh, it's not really an insertion, but anyway. Mr. Aubrey has inserted here the nativity of Waller in the handwriting of his son-in-law, which I insert for the purpose of showing, he means he inscribes in his own copy, he copies it, for the purpose of showing that a confidence in judicial astrology was not peculiar to the writer of these lives. Astrology is a quirk of the times rather than Aubrey. However wild or incredulous on the subject of astrology, says Malone, Aubrey had many celebrated men of the same time to keep him in countenance who are yet not thought lightly of for their eccentricity as poor Aubrey has been. That's one of the most convoluted Malonian sentences I think there is. But in any case, it's an eccentricity that shouldn't be allowed to discredit um, Aubrey altogether. And yet... Astrology is foundational to brief lives, nowhere more saliently than in the life Aubrey writes of himself, what he calls remarkable in an astrological respect. I'm quoting from his birth, and he begins by referring to himself in the third person, from his birth to late years, laboring under a crowd of ill directions, of course, referring to the influence of evil planets, um, and, his, and his own birth, as he continues uh, to narrate his own life after this birth, uh, registers his inability to steer clear of those reigning malign stars at his birth. Uh, and here I'm just culling uh, examples. Born 12 March, about sunrising, and he has a chart in which the date is actually more exact, is entirely exact. And he was born very weak and liked to die until the age of 12, sickness of vomiting, belly ache, pain in the side. His education at Oxford was cut short by civil wars and his father summoning him home. Life in the country with none but servants and rustics, it was a most sad life to me. Then in my prime of my youth, not to have the benefit of an ingenious conversation and scarce any good books. Death of his father that left him massively in debt, followed by more debts and lawsuits. His mother prevented him from seeing the antiquities of Rome and Italy, his dream, says, uh, he says, to my inexpressible grief and ruin, uh, she hindered his design, which was protractic. It was the protractic cause of my ruin. I meant to track down <laughs> that particular um, uh, adjective, but I have a feeling it's astrological, but I don't know for sure. In any case, um, these, this, these are all of the consequences uh, of the particular astrological conjunction under which he was born. Uh, lawsuits, sale of property, uh, inasmuch as mortal uh, could be, he says. And he regrets, very movingly, the loss of monasteries. And he says, even the Turks and Lutherans have monasteries. Why should our reformers be so severe? What a pleasure it would have been to have traveled from monastery to monastery. Um, so even history is a misfortune for him. A strange fate that he has labored under, never in my life to enjoy one entire month odium or contemplation. 
Um, and this relentless misfortune is alleviated here and there by his passion for books, for Bacon, for Ovid, uh, for Brown, and for antiquities. Um, he says, notwithstanding all these embarrassments, I did pian piano take notes on antiquity. And of course, the brief lives, some of them are that. He also uh, celebrates his good friends, and he gives a list of them. Among them is one singular friend, as he calls him, uh, Sir William uh, Petty. Uh, and I, I had this manuscript page on display. Uh, and here is Sir William Petty, the mathematician primarily, although had many interests. Um, <clears throat> uh, and he uh, foregrounds, um, gives primacy to this particular life. Uh, there are many indications that he intended this particular life of Sir William Petty uh, to head um, the entire um, collection. Uh, Kate Bet Bennett has written beautifully about how William Petty's auspicious rather than unfortunate birth was borne out by his life, which is really a stellar success story based on his education, ingenuity, entrepreneurship. He's a self-made man who fully realized his astrological advantage. Now, Aubrey accords Petty pride of place in the celebration, um, and in addition to that, he gives him his best artistic effort. This is the most beautiful and detailed um, of them all. And he was a, a good draftsman, which Malone was not. He, he, Malone also omitted the armorial crests, uh, although in one life that he transcribed, he tried to do uh, Drayton's uh, crest rather incompetently. Okay, so he gives Petty his best artistic effort, but... In Malone's edition, which is here, Petty's life loses his preeminence among the eminent when, without illustration, it takes its dull place in the chronological lineup of his collection. Okay, so um, what I'd like to <laughs> return to uh, is the biograph uh, uh, and its relation to the horoscope. So you have the chronological rectilinear and the multifaceted diagram, and I'd like to propose uh, that these are really two different templates for representing human life in its temporality. Uh, I would call <clears throat> the horoscopic um, diagram uh, integrative uh, in contrast to the chronological through-line, and one the through line is designed to put, no, the horoscope is designed to put an individual life in sync with cosmological phenomena. And the other, the through line, is in order to have it parallel uh, historical time, universal time, uniform and absolute. Okay, uh, both the horoscope and also um, Malone's outlines, his chronological outlines, were meant to be preliminary. They were meant to be preliminary for something to come. And that's why both can be referred to as an apparatus, or in Malone he calls the materials preliminary to uh, his edition of Prolegomenon. Um, but they're materials, uh, they're they they uh, devices uh, for preparing uh, the reader for the reception of what's to come. And these are very different kinds of vehicles uh, for that receipt. Um, here, as in Aubrey, <laughs> I can only, well, Aubrey very often leaves blank spaces in his texts uh, and has a note to himself or others to seek out another source, another informant, more information. And what this particular talk lacks is an account of almanacs uh, that, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, are printed more frequently than any other form in the period of Aubrey's life. Uh, Aubrey refers numerous times to the various almanacs that are important to him. Uh, Malone mentions, annotates none of them. They're present in his transcription, but he won't give you any help with them. Uh, so there is a rather full-scale elimination of the um, astrological component uh, in Malone's transcription. Uh, and that's Hobbes, and that's, well, I kind of wanted to go from Hobbes 
back to D before I return to where I began, and maybe some of you have anticipated this. Um, this is what I would like to see in these bizarre cipher, ciphers that I've called from Malone's transcription of Aubrey. And that is that in the context of his horoscopes and the scattered astrological symbols that are also in Aubrey's manuscripts, Malone is repurposing astrological ciphers to signal his own footnotes. The ciphers have been emptied out of their cosmic signification in order to flag points in Malone's own explanatory system. Astrologically charged symbols are rendered neutral like numbers, but without their serializing function, pure indexicality. A cosmic scheme gives way to the rationalizing demands of the textual apparatus. That's a very highfalutin construal of what these may or may not be about, but at least I think my reading of them has some kind of a logic. I have looked through Malone's markings, and even today I saw the simple sword uh, that he used quite frequently in Johnson's Dictionary, and I saw the two triangles, which indicates that usually, I think, that texts are meant to be brought together. Um, but I have never seen uh, anything, and, but I shouldn't say that because it sounds like my experience of his manuscripts is extensive. Uh, but I do think that there is something unusual about the way he's annotating uh, Aubrey in the context of Malone's own antipathy uh, to something that he doesn't understand um, and feels uh, antagonistic toward. In transcribing, and here I'm concluding, in transcribing the life of the translator and cartographer John Ogilby, Malone explains that he has transferred a paragraph in Aubrey from the end of the entry to the middle. He then justifies the move. Mr. Aubrey put down his information as he could obtain it and did not live to methodize his papers. If only Aubrey had had more time, Malone assumes, had he lived into his 75th or 80th year rather than only into his 72nd, his brief lives might have been in better order. But had he lived longer, I would propose, it is more likely that he would have collected more genitures, more nativities. Malone transcribing and annotating Malone, excuse me, Malone transcribing and annotating Aubrey is, to me, a stunning example of what can happen inevitably when a modern editor, working to make a text accessible, intelligible, and useful, loses sight of what might have been key to the author in the past. In this instance, the relation of the details of individual everyday life to astronomical phenomena. That's what gets lost. What Shakespeare referred to, my one mention of Shakespeare, I didn't even point him out to you in the biograph, but he was there. Okay, this is what Shakespeare referred to as the cheering and checking of the self-same sky. Always, and again necessarily, much slips through the editorial cracks, which is why Aubrey might have preferred that his manuscript not be printed, but kept in a cabinet. Thank you.